When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Even at the best of times, international sporting competitions are incredibly intense. No matter the sport, intensity and emotion are taken to the next level when nations are involved. But what happens when you take a fierce sporting rivalry between two countries and set it during the height of the Cold War? You have a powder keg ready to explode. And that's precisely what happened during the new year of 1987. I'm Jamie Logie, and this is Everything 80s, a podcast that looks back on a decade that forever changed the way we dressed, consumed, and connected. And today, I take you back to the night the lights went out at the World Junior Hockey Championship. This is the story of The Punch-Up and Piastani. this story is based around hockey, it really is a tale that goes beyond sports. But first, I need to set the stage for you. The first stage to set is all about this tournament. The World Junior Hockey Championship is an international ice hockey competition that takes place every year around Christmas. It started officially in 1977, and even though it began slowly, the tournament has become a huge event. This tournament features the best under-20 hockey players in the world and has included countries like the US, Sweden, Finland, Slovakia, Germany, Czechia, Austria, Switzerland, and Denmark, just to name a few. In this tournament, you get to watch the future stars of the National Hockey League and other top pro leagues before they become full professionals. Since 1977, the greatest players in the game have all come through this tournament, all playing for national pride. Next, to set the stage, we need to look at one of the greatest rivalries in all of sports, Canada versus Russia in hockey. Like other big country rivalries like Australia, England in cricket, Sweden, Finland also in hockey, or New Zealand, South Africa in rugby, this rivalry goes back decades. The Canada-Russia rivalry really began in 1972. This was the year of the Summit Series that pitted the best Russian hockey players versus the best pros from Canada. The Summit Series was an eight-game competition split between various cities in Canada and finishing up in the Soviet Union. Back then, no one really knew anything about Russian hockey, and the pros from Canada didn't take it too seriously until they got lit up in the first game and lost 7-3. This was a shock to all of Canada, as the Russians were a relentless, disciplined, and highly skilled team. Canada would bounce back, but this series had become very real. When the games moved to the Soviet Union, Canada needed to win the last three to win the tournament, and this is when things became much more nefarious. Once they reached the Soviet Union, everything seemed to become very difficult for the Canadian team. 
Clearing customs was a nightmare, and the Canadians also complained about their hotel room phones that seemed to be bugged. The players would also get calls at all hours of the night disrupting their sleep. Cars also circled the hotel honking their horns throughout the night. Practice times for Team Canada also seemed to be conveniently double booked, limiting their preparation. Russian officials would also change the referees at the last minute, and suspiciously, the goal lights would often not come on when Canada scored. But in the final game, tied 5-5 with 3,000 Canadian fans out cheering 10,000 Soviet ones, and with just 34 seconds to play in the game, the legendary Paul Henderson scored the biggest goal in Canadian history, sealing the win for Canada. This was a defining moment in Canadian history, but this game and tournament were about so much more than sports. What started as a simple hockey tournament had become a Cold War political battle. It was about more than hockey. It was East versus West. It was communism versus freedom and democracy. The Russia-Canada rivalry was fully established, as was another one between the US and the Soviets at the Winter Olympics in 1980 with yet another iconic hockey game. This was the Miracle on Ice game when a bunch of American amateurs beat one of the most powerhouse Russian teams ever assembled. The North American-Russia hockey rivalry was alive and well, but it really was just between Canada and the Soviets. And that takes us into the last stage to set, and that's the state of the Cold War in the mid-80s. We're technically in the latter stages of the Cold War, but significant events are still taking place. In 1985, Konstantin Chernenko, the General Secretary of the Communist Party, died and was replaced by Mikhail Gorbachev. In 1986, a summit was held to discuss the scaling back of ballistic missile arsenals in Europe. The goal was to create nuclear arms control, but this failed, as this is when Ronald Reagan proposed a strategic defense initiative better known as the Star Wars program. The Star Wars program was a missile defense program to protect the U.S. and shoot down any possible ballistic nuclear weapon attacks, but Gorbachev wanted the program cancelled. And then also in 1986, an event occurred that not only created more distrust, but terrified people around the world. The Chernobyl nuclear disaster. At first, no one knew the extent of how damaging this explosion was, and the Soviets kept information to a minimum. Evacuation around the plant had to occur quickly, but this was still a day and a half before the Soviets even publicly acknowledged that the accident had occurred. As other countries like Sweden tried to get more information about how damaging this all was and how prepared they should be, the Soviets had even denied anything happened. When they first admitted it, the extent of the damage was downplayed, and what had taken place was simply a minor accident. But the rest of the world soon learned the scale of the damage and how terrifying this really was. 
So in the second half of the 1980s, Cold War tension was still high and trust was low. But it was during the new year of 1987 that a Cold War of another form was about to take place on the ice, the one between the Soviets and the Canadians. In the 80s, the Soviet Union was picking up steam in the hockey world. More of their players were making their way to the National Hockey League, and at the World Junior Hockey Championships, they had won four straight gold medals. Then, from 1982 to 1987, gold was won by either Canada or the Soviet Union. Canada won in 1982. The Soviets won in 1983, which contained elements that harken back to that first 1972 series. The 1983 tournament was held in the Soviet Union, and some more inconveniences kept occurring with the Canadian team. It started with the Soviets refusing to give enough visas for the entire team. Next, when Team Canada landed in Leningrad, all of their equipment and belongings were seized by government officials. They only got it back when they threatened to pull out of the tournament. When they finally faced the Soviets, Canada was not allowed to practice at the arena beforehand. This just seemed to further the divide between the two rival countries. The Soviets would win gold again in 1984, Canada won in 85, then the Soviets again in 1986. In fact, for the next 15 years, the tournament would be won by either Canada or the Soviet Union. The parity of the tournament would eventually grow, with the other countries becoming much more competitive, but this tournament was essentially a two-horse race. Except for one year, and that's where our story picks up. The Soviets were dominating the World Junior Hockey Championships, and with the 1986-1987 edition being held in what was then Czechoslovakia, they looked to continue their winning ways. The tournament opened on December 26, 1986, and was held in four different countries in what is now Slovakia. That year's tournament also featured the US, Finland, Czechoslovakia, Sweden, Poland, and Switzerland. But everyone knew it was once again between Canada and the Soviets. Canada opened with a 6-4 win over the Swiss, while the Soviets defeated Poland. Canada had a surprising tie 6-6 with Finland, while the Soviets blanked the Swiss 8-0. Canada struggled in their next matchup against host Czechoslovakia, losing 5-1, before hammering Poland 18-3. Meanwhile, the Soviets were having big trouble, losing to both Finland and then the host country. They tied their next game with Sweden, while Canada defeated the U.S., the Soviets had had an abysmal tournament, and they were set to meet up with Canada on the last day of the tournament, January 4th, 1987, in the town of Piastani. The World Junior Tournament followed a different format back in the 80s. Today, it is a simple two-division elimination tournament with a quarterfinal, semifinal, and final. Back in 1986-87, the tournament followed a round-robin format where teams play each other an equal number of times to accumulate points. The team with the most points wins gold, the second most wins silver, and the third most receives bronze. Going into the last day of play, the Soviets were completely out of the tournament with nothing to play for while Canada was guaranteed a medal. If Canada lost in that final game to the Soviets, they would still receive bronze. If they beat the Soviets, it guaranteed silver. And Canada would take gold if they won by a margin of five goals or more. 
Keep that in mind as this five goal scenario would be seen by some as the impetus for what was about to happen that night. Everything 80s will return after these messages. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. That year's Canadian team featured some future big-time pros, including Brendan Shanahan, Pierre Turgeon, Steve Chason, Mike Keane, Luke Richardson, and Theron Fleury. The Soviet team also featured some future stars, including Alexander McGillney, Vladimir Konstantinov, and the great Sergei Fedorov. The Canadian team played a very aggressive style with big hits and a lot of intensity. Even though the Soviets had nothing to lose, Canada was going to come right at them to not just medal, but try to take gold. This was clearly going to be a very hard game to control, and the International Ice Hockey Federation selected Hans Ronning from Norway as the head referee. This was a questionable decision as Ronning was inexperienced refereeing at the international level, especially between two heated rivals. In his book, When the Lights Went Out, How One Brawl Ended Hockey's Cold War and Changed the Game by Gare Joyce, Joyce talked to the Finnish linesman who worked that game. The linesman said they knew they were sitting on a powder keg. Quote, I had a bad feeling even before the game. I thought something bad could happen. Just the situation of one team having nothing to play for and a big rivalry. Unquote. And the game started with a bang. The moment the puck dropped to begin the game, a Canadian player delivers a massive cross-check to a Soviet player, but this was in response to an elbow shot, but no penalties were called. The first few minutes of play featured a lot of body checking and extremely tight play. There were a few skirmishes on the ice after the whistles had blown to stop play, but nothing out of the ordinary. Canada opened the scoring five minutes in when Theo Fleury, the great Calgary Flame, scored the game's first goal. If you grew up watching Fleury, you know he would tend to, let's just say, embellish his goal celebrations, or celly. And this was no different. In a move not caught on camera, Fleury apparently slid on his knees by the Soviet bench, aiming his stick like it was a machine gun to fire on the Soviets. The game would only heat up from there. Consistent slashing was raising tempers on the ice and you could feel the tension growing. The first period ended with Canada up 3-1. As the second period began, the slashing and roughness continued and a lot of choice language that I won't repeat here. Each team would score a goal, putting Canada up 4-2 and they looked to be controlling the game. Remember, Canada needed to win by five or more goals to take home the gold. But no matter what happened, as long as they finished the game, they were guaranteed a medal, while the Soviets were essentially playing for nothing. Things were looking good for Canada, but the tension and chippiness on the ice continued to grow. With 6.07 to go in the second period, things finally boiled over. 
As the television broadcast came back from commercial, we found ourselves watching a melee on the ice. It had started after a face-off, which resulted in a fight between two players. While this was going on, a Soviet player slashed Theo Fleury, causing another fight. Now, in the National Hockey League, fighting is permitted. It's still penalized, but you are unlikely to be kicked out of the game like in other sports. In international hockey, fighting is pretty much non-existent. But here we were, watching an entire line brawl with all 10 players squaring off. A Canadian player was headbutted, and with only three officials, there was no controlling the fights. In a standard NHL fight, the two players will engage with each other, with the officials jumping in when it's getting out of hand, or if the fight is over, sending both players on their separate ways to the penalty box. But with no one to break up the fight, a lot of vicious things were happening. But things were about to get much worse. The benches emptied, and the ice turned into a literal battleground. So, in the National Hockey League, the majority of the fights just result in that five-minute penalty to both players. But in the case of a line brawl where all ten players on the ice square up, it's usually only just one or two of the combatants actually fighting, and maybe some shoving between the others. Then there are the infamous bench-clearing brawls. These don't really happen anymore, but in the past, it was when all hell broke loose. But it's the same situation where it's usually a handful of combatants while other players just pair off and wait it out. You'll see the same thing in baseball with a bench-clearing brawl, which often ends up being a whole lot of nothing as 90% of those involved aren't really doing anything. This was different. This was mayhem and dangerous. Everyone on the ice was fighting. Two-on-one fights, three-on-one fights, headbutting, kicking, stick work, you name it. I was about 10 years old when this game took place and remember watching it like it was yesterday and can vividly recall how frightening it was. I always liked the physicality of hockey, but this was something different. This was genuinely scary. This wasn't just one or two pairs fighting. This was reckless violence and almost an every man for themselves type situation. The outnumbered fights were happening all over the ice. Other players were being kicked with skates. One Canadian forward had a round boot mark on his forehead. There's a bit of technique to the hockey fight, but the Soviets didn't fight and didn't know what they were doing, which is what led to the frightening danger of this brawl. This is one of the toughest teams Canada had ever assembled, but not when one player is having to fight three people at once. With no one to break up any of the violence, it simply continued. The three on-ice officials were clearly powerless to stop the brawl of over 40 players and just left the ice. This is a brawl we hadn't really ever seen before. It involved all the players and it just kept going. And it was getting worse. Tournament officials had no idea what to do and decided to turn off all the lights in the arena. Not a great idea. With no windows or emergency lights, the arena was completely black. 
players couldn't even see the face of the person they were fighting. Now, what was already violent just became even more dangerous as the vicious acts intensified. It seemed as if survival mode had taken over. Brendan Shanahan, who would go on to become a Hall of Fame NHLer, said in an interview with the Hockey News that, while on the ice in the brawl, he kept thinking how the whole thing should be over by now, and it wasn't even close to done. In his mind, the turning out of the lights meant, quote, whatever you've got to do, do it, but this has to end, unquote. The brawl lasted for 20 minutes and eventually ended as the players were too exhausted to even continue. Tournament officials ordered Canada to pack up all their belongings and be out of the arena in 30 minutes. The players were escorted out by the military and had to board a simple school bus with no food, drinks or even a bathroom. They then had to take a four-hour journey to Austria, sleeping overnight in the airport before flying home. You have to remember that these are teenagers and the seriousness of the situation was starting to sink in. They had no idea if they would get home or what was waiting for them if they did. When all the dust settled, both teams were kicked out from the tournament and almost a race from existence. All the records and stats associated with the two teams were deleted from the tournament's history. It was almost like the two teams and the game itself never existed. Because both teams were banned, that year's gold medal went to Finland, followed by Czechoslovakia with silver and Sweden with bronze. And of course, the finger pointing began. Who escalated this whole thing and who was first off the bench to cause this vicious on-ice brawl? Tonight, the Canadian players are saying the Soviets started the brawl by leaving their bench first. The Soviets aren't saying anything. As Fred Walker reported, the brawl meant the Canadian team lost a medal finish in the tournament. As for the Soviets, they only lost prestige. They were already out of the running for a medal. The question of who started this whole thing has always been a debate. Some say it was Soviet player Evgeny Davidov, and once that first player jumps the boards, it triggers everyone else to go. With limited network coverage, there isn't a ton of footage to assess, and obviously no cell phone cameras or extra video that would be commonplace today. Should the coaches be to blame for not having better control of their players? Possibly, but it's hard to control pure chaos. Was it the referee's fault for not having better control of the game and letting it even escalate to this point? That's been brought up too, but there were just so many situations that led to this ticking time bomb waiting to happen that it doesn't seem anything could have prevented it. And then there's always been the sentiment that the brawl was an intentional act by the Soviets to get Canada banned and deprive them of a gold medal. But this may have just been more Cold War era conspiracy theories. During an era of mistrust and secrecy, no one knew what to believe. And it's unfair to pin this all on the Soviets, as the Canadian players were just as guilty for the acts taking place on the ice. But then there are also allegations that the Soviet players were not being fed after games as a punishment for how bad they had played during the tournament. And that, quote, serious repercussions were waiting for them when they got home, unquote. No matter which stories are true or not, this game was always a powder keg waiting to blow. The interesting thing about the punch-up in Piastani is that it actually brought more attention to the tournament. 
It was one of the biggest news stories of 1987, and many who were not aware of the World Junior Hockey Tournament would discover how, when played normally, it was an incredible showcase of future elite talent. It also led to changes in the NHL, where bench-clearing brawls were banned, and they just don't really exist anymore. Also, I swear this is a coincidence, but if you're listening to this episode the day it's released, it's exactly 35 years to the day of the punch-up in Piastani. This seems to happen a lot on this podcast, and there's some sort of unique serendipity between these topics and my release day. But when those players skated onto the ice, they probably didn't expect that we'd still be talking about this more than three decades later. Little did they know they were about to embark on their own Cold War battle. Not with tanks or missiles, but on a 200-foot-long sheet of ice. So that's our show. Thank you so much for listening. And if you like this episode, there's plenty more where that came from. So why not dive back into my earlier episodes, as there are plenty of great 1980s topics for you to sink your teeth into. And if you really like this show, do me a solid and hook me up with a five-star rating and review, as this also helps other people find these great episodes. And if you're in a position to help support the show, you can consider becoming a part of Patreon.com. That's the platform to get access to bonus audio content, including things like the Everything 80s Movie Review Podcast. If you want to check that out, just head to Patreon.com slash 80s. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash 80s or click on the link in the description. So that's it for me. I'm Jamie. This has been Everything 80s, but I'll be back soon with a new episode. Don't you dare miss it.